Chapters 23 and 24 of Beautiful Joe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Allison Hester of Athens, Georgia. Beautiful Joe by Marshall Saunders. Chapter 23 Trapping Wild Animals. Well, Mr. Wood began, I was brought up as y'all know in the eastern part of maine and we often used to go over into new brunswick for our sport moose were our best game did you ever see one laura no uncle she said well when i was a boy there was no more beautiful sight to me in the world than a moose with his dusky hide and long legs and branching antlers and shoulders standing higher than a horse's their legs are so long that they can't eat close to the ground they browse on the tops of plants and the tender shoots of leaves and trees they walk among the thick underbrush carrying their horns adroitly to prevent their catching in the branches and they step so well and aim so true that you'll scarcely hear a twig fall as they go they're a timid creature except at times then they'll attack with hoofs and antlers whatever comes in their way they hate mosquitoes and when they're tormented by them it's just as well to be careful about approaching them like all other creatures the lord has put into them a wonderful amount of sense and when a female moose has her one or two fawns she goes into the deepest part of the forest or swims to islands and large lakes till they are able to look out for themselves well we used to like to catch a moose and we had different ways of doing it one way was to snare them we'd make a loop and a rope and hide it on the ground under the dead leaves in one of their paths this was connected with a young sapling whose top was bent down when the moose stepped on it the loop would release the sapling and up it would bound catching him by the leg these snares were always set deep in the woods, and we couldn't visit them very often. Sometimes the moose would be there for days, raging and tearing around and scratching the skin off his legs. That was cruel. I wouldn't catch a moose in that way now for a hundred dollars. Another way was to hunt them on snowshoes with dogs. In February and March, the snow was deep and would carry men and dogs. Moose don't go together in herds. In the summer, they wander about over the forest, and in the autumn, they come together in small groups and select a hundred or two of acres where there is plenty of heavy undergrowth and to which they usually confine themselves. They do this so that their tracks won't tell their enemies where they are. Any of these places where there were several moose, we called a moose yard. We went through the woods till we got on to the tracks of some of the animals belonging to it. Then the dogs smelled them and went ahead to start them. If I shut my eyes now, I can see one of our moose hunts. The moose running and plunging through the snow crust, and occasionally rising up and striking at the dogs that hang on to his bleeding flanks and legs. The hunter's rifles going crack, 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 sometimes killing or wounding dogs as well as moose. That, too, was cruel. Two other ways we had of hunting moose, calling and stalking. The calling was done in this way. We took a bit of birch bark and rolled it up in the shape of a horn. 
We took this horn and started out, either on a bright moonlit night, or just at evening, or early in the morning. The man who carried the horn hid himself, and then began to make a lowing sound like a female moose. He had to do it pretty well to deceive them. Away in the distance, some moose would hear it, and with answering grunts, would start off to come to it. If a young male moose was coming, he'd mind his steps, I can assure you, on account of fear of the old ones. But if he was an old fella, you'd hear him stepping out bravely and wrapping his horns against the trees and plunging into any water that came in his way. When he got pretty near, he'd stop to listen, and then the caller had to be very careful and put his trumpet down close to the ground so as to make a lower sound. If the moose felt doubtful, he'd turn. If not, he'd come on, and unlucky for him if he did, for he got a warm reception, either from the rifles in our hands as we lay hid near the collar, or from some of the party stationed at a distance. In stalking, we crept on them the way a cat creeps on a mouse. In the daytime, a moose is usually lying down. We'd find their tracks and places where they'd been nipping off the ends of branches and twigs and follow them up. They'd easily take the scent of man, and we'd have to keep well to the leeward. Sometimes we'd come upon them lying down, but if in walking along we'd broken a twig or made the slightest noise, they'd think it was one of their mortal enemies, a bear, creeping on them, and they'd be up and away. Their sense of hearing is very keen, but they're not so quick to see. A fox is like that, too. His eyes aren't equal to his nose. Stalking is the most merciful way to kill a moose. Then they haven't the fright and suffering of the chase. I don't see why they need to be killed at all, said Mrs. Wood. If I knew that forest back of the mountains was full of wild creatures, I think I'd be glad of it and not want to hunt them. That is, if they were harmless and beautiful creatures like the deer. You're a woman, said Mr. Wood, and women are more merciful than men. Men want to kill and slay. They're like the Englishman who said, What a fine day it is. Let's go out and kill something. Please tell us some more about the dogs that helped you catch the moose, Uncle, said Miss Laura. I was sitting up very straight beside her, listening to every word Mr. Wood said, and she was fondling my head. Well, Laura, when we camped out on the snow and slept on spruce boughs while we were after the moose, the dogs used to be a great comfort to us. They slept at our feet and kept us warm. Poor brutes, they mostly had a rough time of it. They enjoyed the running and chasing as much as we did, but when it came to broken ribs and sore heads, it was another matter. Then the porcupines bothered them. Our dogs would never learn to let them alone. If they were going through the woods where there was no signs of moose and found a porcupine, they'd kill it. The quills would get in their mouths and necks and chests, and we'd have to gag them and take bullet molds or nippers or whatever we had, sometimes our jackknives, and pull out the nasty things. If we got hold of the dogs at once, we could pull out the quills with our fingers. Sometimes the quills had worked in, and the dogs would go home and lie by the fire with running sores till they worked out. I've seen quills work right through dogs, 
go in one side and come out on the other poor brutes said mrs wood i wonder you took them we once lost a valuable hound while moose hunting said mr wood the moose struck him with his hoof and the dog was terribly injured and lay in the wood for days till a neighbor of ours who was looking for timber found him and brought him home on his shoulders wasn't there rejoicing among us boys to see old lion coming back we took care of him and he got well again it was good sport to see the dogs when we were hunting a bear with them bears are good runners and when dogs get after them there is a great skirmishing they knit the bear behind and when they turn the dogs run like mad for a hug from a bear means sure death to a dog if they got a slap from his paws over they'd go dogs new to the business were often killed by the bears were there many bears near your home mr wood asked mr maxwell lots of em more than we wanted they used to bother us fearfully about our sheep and cattle i've often had to get up in the night and run out to the cattle the bears would come out of the woods and jump on the young heifers and cows and strike them and beat them down and the cattle would roar as if the evil one had them if the cattle were too far away from the house for us to hear them the bears would worry them till they were dead as for the sheep they never made any resistance they'd meekly run in a corner when they saw a bear coming and huddle together and he'd strike at them and scratch them with his claws and perhaps wound a dozen before he got one firmly then he'd seize it in his paws and walk off on its hind legs over fences and anything else that came in his way till he came to a nice retired spot and there he'd sit down and skin that sheep just like a butcher he'd gorge himself with the meat and in the morning we'd find the other sheep that he'd torn and we'd vow vengeance against that bear he'd be almost sure to come back for more so for a while after that we always put the sheep in the barn at nights and set a trap by the remains of the one he had eaten everybody hated bears and they hadn't much pity for them still they were only getting their meat as other wild animals do and we'd no right to set such cruel traps for them as the steel ones they had a clog attached to them and had long sharp teeth we put them on the ground and strode leaves over them and hung up some of the carcass left by the bear nearby when he attempted to get this meat he would tread on the trap and the teeth would spring together and catch him by the leg they always fought to get free i once saw a bear that had been making a desperate effort to get away his leg was broken the skin and flesh were all torn away and he was held by the tendons it was a foreleg that was caught and he would put his hind feet against the jaws of the trap and then draw by pressing with his feet till he would stretch those tendons to their utmost extent i have known them to work away till they really pulled these tendons out of the foot and got off it was a great event in our neighborhood when a bear was caught whoever caught him blew a horn and the men and boys came trooping together to see the sight i've known them to blow that horn on a sunday morning and i've seen the men turn their backs on the meeting house to go and see the bear was there no more merciful way of catching them than by this trap asked miss laura oh yes by the deadfall that is by driving heavy sticks into the ground and making a box-like place open on one side 
where two logs were so arranged with the other heavy logs upon them that when the bear seized the bait, the upper log fell down and crushed him to death. Another way was to fix a bait in a certain place with cords tied to it, which cords were fastened to triggers of guns placed at a little distance. When the bear took the bait, the guns went off, and he shot himself. Sometimes it took a good many bullets to kill them. I remember one old fella that we put eleven into before he keeled over. It was one fall over on Pike's Hill. The snow had come earlier than usual, and this old bear hadn't gotten into his den for his winter sleep. A lot of us started out after him. The hill was covered with beech trees, and he'd been living all the fall on the nuts till he got as fat as butter. We took dogs and worried him, and ran him from one place to another, and shot at him, till at last he dropped. We took his meat home, and had his skin tanned for a sleigh robe. One day, I was in the woods, and looking through the trees, espied a bear. He was standing up on his hind legs, snuffing in every direction, and just about the time I espied him, he espied me. I had no dog and no gun, so I thought I had better be getting home to my dinner. I was a small boy then, and the bear, probably thinking I'd be a mouthful for him anyway, began to come after me in a leisurely way. I can see myself now going through those woods, hat gone, jacket flying, arms out, eyes rolling over my shoulder every little while to see if the bear was gaining on me. He was a benevolent-looking old fella, and his face seemed to say, Don't hurry, little boy. He wasn't doing his prettiest, and I soon got away from him, but I made up my mind then that it was more fun to be the chaser than the chased. Another time, I was out in our cornfield, and hearing a rustling, looked through the stalks and saw a brown bear with two cubs. She was slashing down the corn with her paws to get at the ears. She smelled me, and getting frightened, began to run. I had a dog with me this time, and shouted and rapped on the fence, and set him on her. He jumped up and snapped at her flanks, and every few instants she'd turn and give him a cuff. That would send him yards away. I followed her up, and just back of the farm she and her cubs took into a tree. I sent my dog home, and my father and some of the neighbors came. It had gotten dark by this time, so we built a fire under the tree and watched all night and told stories to keep each other awake. Toward morning, we got sleepy and the fire burnt low, and didn't that old bear and one cub drop right down among us and start off to the woods. That waked us up. We built the fire to keep watch so that the one cub still in the tree couldn't get away. Until daylight, the mother bear hung around calling to the cub to come down. Did you let it go, uncle? asked Miss Laura. No, my dear, we shot it. How cruel, cried Mrs. Wood. Yeah, weren't we brutes, said her husband. But there was some excuse for us, Hattie. The bears ruined our farms. This kind of hunting that hunts and kills for the mere sake of slaughter is very different from that. I tell you what I've no patience with, and that's these English folks that dress themselves up and take fine horses and packs of dogs and tear over the country after one little fox or rabbit. Bah, it's contemptible. Now, if they were hunting cruel, man-eating tigers or animals that destroy property, it would be a different thing. End of chapter 23 
Trapping Wild Animals Chapter 24 The Rabbit and the Hen You had foxes up in Maine, I suppose, Mr. Wood, hadn't you? Asked Mr. Maxwell. Heaps of them. I always want to laugh when I think of our foxes, for they were so cute. Never a fox that I catch in a trap, though I'd set a many a one. I'd take the carcass of some creature that had died, a sheep, for instance, and put it in a field near the woods, and the foxes would come and eat it. After they got accustomed to come and eat, and no harm befell them, they would be unsuspecting. So just before a snowstorm, I'd take a trap and put it in this spot. I'd handle it with gloves, and I'd smoke it and rub fir boughs on it to take away the human smell. And then the snow would come and cover it up. And yet those foxes would know it was a trap and walk around it. It's a wonderful thing, that sense of smell in animals, if it is a sense of smell. Joe here has got a good bit of it. What kind of traps were they, father? asked Mr. Harry. Cruel ones, steel ones. They'd catch an animal by the leg and sometimes break the bone. The leg would bleed, and below the jaws of the trap, it would freeze, there being no circulation of blood. Those steel traps are an abomination. The people around here use one made on the same principle for catching rats. I wouldn't have them on my place for any money. I believe we've got to give an account for all the unnecessary suffering we put on animals. You'll have some to answer for, John, according to your own story, said Mrs. Wood. I've suffered already, he said. Many a night I've lain on my bed and groaned. When I thought of needless cruelties I'd put upon animals when I was a young, unthinking boy, and I was pretty carefully brought up, too, according to our light in those days, I often think that if I was cruel, with all the instruction I had to be merciful, what can be expected of the children that get no good teaching at all when they're young? Tell us some more about the foxes, Mr. Wood, said Mr. Maxwell. Well, we used to have a rare sport for hunting them with the foxhounds. I'd often go off for the day with my hounds. Sometimes, early in the morning, they'd find a track in the snow. The leader for scent would go back and forth to find out which way the fox was going. I can see him now, all the time he ran, now one way and now another on the track of the fox. He was silent, but kept his tail aloft, wagging it as a signal to the hounds behind. He was leader in his scent, but he did not like bloody, dangerous fights. By and by, he would decide which way the fox had gone. Then, his tail, still kept high in the air, would wag more violently. The rest followed him in single file, going pretty slow, so as to enable us to keep up to them. By and by, they would come to a place where the fox was sleeping for the day. As soon as he was disturbed, he would leave his bed under some thick fir or spruce branches near the ground. This flung his fresh scent into the air. As soon as the hounds sniffed it, they gave tongue in good earnest. It was a mixed, deep baying that made the blood quicken in my veins. While in the excitement of his first fright, the fox would run for a mile or two till he found it an easy matter to keep out of the way of the hounds. Then he 
cunning creature, would begin to bother them. He would mount to the top pole of a worm fence, dividing the fields from the woods. He could trot along here quite a distance, and then make a long jump into the woods. The hounds would come up, but could not walk the fence, and they would have difficulty in finding where the fox had left it. Then we saw generalship. The hounds scattered in all directions and made long detours into the woods and fields. As soon as the track was lost, they ceased to bay, but the instant a hound found it again, he bayed to give signal to the others. All would hurry to the spot, and off they would go baying as they went. Then Mr. Fox would try a new trick. He would climb a leaning tree and then jump to the ground. This trick would soon be found out. Then he'd try another. He would make a circle of a quarter of a mile in circumference. By making a loop in his course, he would come in behind the hounds and puzzle them between the scent of his first and following tracks. If the snow was deep, the hounds had made a good track for him. Over this, he could run easily, and they would have to feel their way along. For after he had gone around the circle a few times, he would jump from the beaten path as far as he could and make off to the other cover in a straight line. Before this was done, it was my plan to get near the circle, taking care to approach it on the leeward side. If the fox got a sniff of human scent, he would leave his circle very quickly and make tracks fast to be out of danger. By the baying of the hounds, the circle in which the race was kept up could easily be known. The last runs to get near enough to shoot had to be done when the hounds baying came from the side of the circle nearest me, for then the fox would be on the opposite side farthest away. As soon as I got near enough to see the hounds when they passed, I stopped. When they got on the opposite side, I then kept a bright lookout for the fox. Sometimes when the brush was thick, the sight of him would be indistinct. The shooting had to be quick. As soon as the report of the gun was heard, the hounds ceased to bay and made for the spot. If the fox was dead, they enjoyed the scent of his blood. If only wounded, they went after him with all speed. Sometimes he was overtaken and killed, and sometimes he got into his burrow in the earth, or in a hollow log, or among the rocks. One day I remember when I was standing on the outside of the circle, the fox came in sight. I fired. He gave a shrill bark and came toward me. Then he stopped in the snow and fell dead in his tracks. I was a pretty good shot in those days. Poor little fox, said Miss Laura. I wish you had let him get away. Here's one that nearly got away, said Mr. Wood. One winter's day, I was chasing him with the hounds. There was crust on the snow, and the fox was light while the dogs were heavy. They ran along, the fox trotting nimbly on the top of the crust, and the dogs breaking through. And every few minutes, that fox would stop and sit down to look at the dogs. They were in a fury, and the wickedness of the fox in teasing them made me laugh so much that I was very unwilling to shoot him. You said your steel traps were cruel things, uncle, said Miss Laura. Why didn't you have a deadfall for the foxes as you had for the bears? They were too cunning to go into deadfalls. There was a better way to catch them, though. Foxes hate water and never go into it unless they are obliged to, 
so we used to find a place where a tree had fallen across the river and made a bridge for them to go back and forth on here we set snares with spring poles that would throw them into the river when they made struggles to get free and drown them did you ever hear of the fox lore that wanted to cross a river and lay down on the bank pretending he was dead and a countryman came along and thinking he had a prize threw him in his boat and rowed across when the fox got up and ran away now uncle said miss laura you're laughing at me that couldn't be true no no said mr wood chuckling but they're mighty cute at pretending they're dead i once shot one in the morning carried him a long way on my shoulders and started to skin him in the afternoon when he turned around and bit me enough to draw blood at another time i dug one out of a hole in the ground he feigned death i took him up and threw him down at some distance and he jumped up and ran away into the woods what other animals did you catch when you were a boy asked mr maxwell oh a number otters and beavers we caught them in deadfalls and in steel traps the mink we usually took in deadfalls smaller of course than the ones we used for the bears the muskrat we caught in box traps like a mouse trap the wildcat we ran down like the laup servier what kind of animal is that asked mr maxwell it is a lynx belonging to the cat species they used to prowl about the country killing hens geese and sometimes sheep they'd fix their tushes in the sheep's neck and suck the blood they did not think much of the sheep's flesh we ran them down with dogs they'd often run up trees and we'd shoot them then there were the rabbits we caught mostly in snares for muskrats we'd put a parsnip or an apple on the spindle of a box trap when we snared a rabbit i always wanted to find it caught around the neck and strangled to death if they got half through the snare and were caught around the body or by the hind legs they'd live for some time and they'd just cry like a child i like shooting em better just because i hated to hear their pitiful cries it's a bad business this of killing dumb creatures and the older i get the more chicken-hearted i am about it chicken-hearted i should think you are said mrs wood do you know laura he won't even kill a fowl for dinner he gives one of his men to do it blessed are the merciful said miss laura throwing her arms over her uncle's shoulders i love you dear uncle john because you are so kind to every living thing i'm going to be kind to you now said her uncle and send you to bed you look tired very well she said with a smile then bidding them all good night she went upstairs mr wood turned to mr maxwell you're going to stay all night with us aren't you so mrs wood says replied the young man with a smile of course she said i couldn't think of letting you go back to the village such a night as this it's raining cats and dogs oh but i mustn't say that or there'll be no getting you to stay i'll go and prepare your old room next to harry's and she bustled away the two young men went to the pantry for doughnuts and milk and mr wood stood gazing down at me good dog he said 
You look as if you sensed that talk tonight. Come, get a bone. Then away to bed. He gave me a very large mutton bone, and I held it in my mouth and watched him opening the woodshed door. I love human beings, and the saddest time of day for me is when I have to be separated from them while they sleep. Now go to bed and rest well, beautiful Joe, said Mr. Wood, and if you hear any stranger around the house, run out and bark. Don't be chasing wild animals in your sleep, though. They say a dog is the only animal that dreams. I wonder whether it's true. Then he went into the house and shut the door. I had a sheepskin to lie on and a very good bed it made. I slept soundly for a long time. Then I waked up and found that instead of rain pattering against the roof and darkness everywhere, it was quite light. The rain was over and the moon was shining beautifully. I ran to the door and looked out. It was almost as light as day. The moon made it very bright around the house and farm buildings, and I could look all about and see that there was no one stirring. I took a turn around the yard and walked around to the side of the house to glance up at Miss Laura's window. I always did this several times through the night, just to see if she was quite safe. I was on my way back to bed when I saw two small white things moving away down the lane. I stood on the veranda and watched them. When I got nearer, I saw that there was a white rabbit hopping up the road, followed by a white hen. It seemed to me a very strange thing for these creatures to be out this time of night. And why were they coming to Dingley Farm? This wasn't their home. I ran down on the road and stood in front of them. Just as soon as the hen saw me, she fluttered in front of the rabbit and, spreading out her wings, clucked angrily and acted as if she would peck my eyes out if I came nearer. I saw that they were harmless creatures, and remembering my adventure with the snake, I stepped aside. Besides that, I knew by their smell that they had been near Mr. Maxwell, so perhaps they were after him. They understood quite well that I would not hurt them and passed by me. The rabbit went ahead again, and the hen fell behind. It seemed to me that the hen was sleepy and didn't like to be out so late at night and was only following the rabbit because she thought it was her duty. He was going along in a very queer fashion, putting his nose to the ground and rising up on his hind legs and sniffing the air, first on this side and then on the other and his nose going, going all the time. He smelled all around the house till he came to Mr. Maxwell's room at the back. It opened on the veranda by a glass door, and the door stood ajar. The rabbit squeezed himself in, and the hen stayed out. 
She watched for a while, and when he didn't come back, she flew upon the back of a chair that stood near the door and put her head under her wing. I went back to my bed, for I knew they would do no harm. Early in the morning, when I was walking around the house, I heard a great shouting and laughing from Mr. Maxwell's room. He and Harry had just discovered the hen and the rabbit, and Mr. Harry was calling his mother to come and look at them. The rabbit had slept on the foot of the bed. Mr. Harry was chaffing Mr. Maxwell very much and was telling him that anyone who entertained him was in for a traveling menagerie. They had a great deal of fun over it, and Mr. Maxwell said that he had had that pretty white hen as a pet for a long time in Boston. Once, when she had some little chickens, a frightened rabbit that was being chased by a dog ran into the yard. In his terror, he got right under the hen's wings, and she sheltered him and pecked at the dog's eyes and kept him off till help came. The rabbit belonged to a neighbor's boy, and Mr. Maxwell bought it from him. From the day the hen protected him, she became his friend and followed him everywhere. I did not wonder that the rabbit wanted to see his master. There was something about that young man that made dumb animals just delight in him. When Mrs. Wood mentioned this to him, he said, I don't know why they should. I don't do anything to fascinate them. You love them, she said, and they know it. That is the reason. End of chapter 24, The Rabbit and the Hen.